This week on the show, we explain a little bit about the FreeBSD hypervisor, its origins, and what it can do. We cover the UDF information leak from a while ago, nevertheless important. Uh, we cover being a Vim user instead of classic VI and why that might be important to you. Uh, FreeBSD on ESXi arm fling, fixing the virtual hardware is an interesting article for people trying out this kind of virtualization. Then we also have the new FreeBSD remote process plugin in LLDB and we will describe and talk about what this does. An OpenBSD laptop installation is also for the people who want to have an uh, install doing, done or done. And more, of course, in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 375, Virtually Everything, recorded for the 4th of November 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, people on Earth. Well, if you're listening to us on the ISS or any other uh, orbiting space station, then you should definitely let us know. Um, but other than that, we have great headlines for you this week. Uh, Beehive, the FreeBSD hypervisor over on clarasystems.com. Yeah, this is mostly about uh, some work I did over the summer, but also uh, has a bit of a history of Beehive that I wrote down from my memories and searching some commit logs and so on. So FreeBSD has had some support for being a hypervisor throughout its history, you know, from the early times where you could run VMware Workstation 3 on FreeBSD using the Linux emulation layer, then QMU showed up and there was a port of that, although it was kind of slow. So then KQMU, which was a kernel module that could speed QMU up, came in about 2005. I remember using that and having a computer that dual booted Windows and FreeBSD. And then whichever one you were booted into, you could use QMU to run the other half of the disk in the VM so that you could access the other operating system while in the, the first one, but be able to go back and forth between the two. That's cool. Then in 2009, we got VirtualBox, uh, but then over time we also got Zen and Beehive. So in the late 2000s, NetApp was uh, investigating using a hypervisor to be able to run additional services on top of their storage appliance that was based on FreeBSD. Later that year in the fall of 2010, uh, there was the MeetBSD conference in California, and Peter Grehan and Neil Natu, who were NetBSD employees, started asking about the potential, you know, if people were interested in a type two hypervisor for FreeBSD. And there was a lot of interest and uh, it basically kind of doing MeetBSD, they often do these breakout sessions where you pick a bunch of different topics and people break into the rooms and talk about them. But a type two hypervisor for FreeBSD was so popular, it was basically everyone wanted to talk about that one topic. And so they did, and they talked a bit about it. And the first code landed in FreeBSD in May of 2011. And it's basically been continuously developed uh, since then, which we're going to be coming up on the 10 year anniversary of Beehive awfully soon, oh, which wow. is a lot to think about. Mm -hmm. Time moves fast. Yeah. yeah. So as it was originally introduced into FreeBSD, because, you know, originally it was built for a special purpose at NetApp, Beehive required reserved resources. So that meant you'd have to set a loader.conf tunable and say, hey, FreeBSD, instead of the actual amount of RAM you have, you have this smaller amount. And then 
everything between that smaller amount and how much you actually had is what you could use for VMs. Eventually that grew to it being able to work with the kernel and allocate in free memory and, and be able to have beehives without that. But in the beginning, that's how it had to work. Uh, and CPUs had to be pinned to the guests. You know, you couldn't, each CPU could only be used by one guest at a time and you couldn't share and lots of other things that you can do now. But over time, Beehive grew out of those limitations, gained support for AMD hardware as well as Intel and a bunch more. If you want to know more about some of those early days, we actually interviewed Peter and Neil about it back in, oh, 2014. So it's worth checking out that video if you're interested as well. One of the things that was most interesting about Beehive is that it's a legacy free hypervisor, meaning Unlike most hypervisors like VMware and VirtualBox and QMU, it doesn't emulate old hardware that happens to have drivers for everything. Uh, so it doesn't emulate having a floppy drive, and it doesn't emulate some old motherboard chipset that happens to work in every operating system. Uh, it uses things like Vertio to have special para-virtualized drivers uh, that are much faster and don't have as much of that having to emulate a 1990s PCI device. The legacy support, yeah. Yeah. And so managed to avoid some of the uh, vulnerabilities that we saw in like QMU and Zen uh, around the floppy disk driver and so on by just having that much less code and having less complicated code. But speaking of Vertio, that's where we get into the work that my company, Clara Systems, did, which is uh, Vertio has support in the protocol for trim so that when you delete files inside the VM, if you're using a file system inside the VM that supports trim, it can tell the virtual hard drive, hey, trim this chunk of uh, the file or of the hard drive. Uh, and Verdeo has a way to send that command down to the hypervisor saying, hey, this chunk of the virtual image is no longer being used. You can free it. So I did two separate commits. The first one extended the FreeBSD Vertio driver so that when FreeBSD is a guest, it will advertise support for trim so that whatever file system you're running on top of it, whether it's UFS or ZFS or whatever, will be able to generate these trim commands and send them to the Vertio driver. The second commit adds that support to the Beehive side of the code uh, so that Beehive will communicate with the Vertio driver in the guest saying that the hypervisor supports trim as well. And then that command will come through. So now if you have a VM that's backed by a Zvol, uh, or a real hard drive on FreeBSD, when you trim inside, it will trim on the host, uh, the right offset. Um, so if you make a VM based on a Zvol uh, and you, you know, you make the Zvol really big, like a terabyte uh, for this VM, and you know, it's only using 20 gigabytes inside, but if you delete a gigabyte of data inside before, you wouldn't have got that space back. Every data that's been written to the Zvol will continue to be used. Like the, the host doesn't know what sectors are in use and which ones aren't but trim allows it to know. Uh, so now uh, when Beehive sees that, it will send it uh, to ZFS, which will actually free the space and give you space back on the Zvol. And so you'll actually be able to see in ZFS list, the Zvol actually gets smaller, where the, the use space in the Zvol go down when you delete stuff inside the VM. What doesn't work yet is if you use a file. So if you just use say the truncate command and make a one terabyte file and use that to back the VM, uh, currently, you know, that when you first make the file and it's empty, it'll actually take zero bytes of space. And then as you write to different parts of it, they'll go from being sparse to having data and they will take up space. But currently we don't have the support to be able to punch a hole in that file and take a chunk of it that did contain data and turn it back into being sparse. But it's on my to-do list. Uh, and then the article also goes on to talk about some of the interesting stuff that's happening in Beehive. 
including the Vertio 9P driver, which allows you to pass a file system in uh, over the um, Plan 9 protocol. Uh, so this way you can just take a file system from the host and pass it into the guest uh, by using Vertio instead of having to use Samba or NFS or whatever. And I've actually seen a demo of that working now. It's getting very close. Uh, it's very cool. There's also uh, Save and Restore, so the ability to basically snapshot a VM uh, stop it, reboot the machine, and resume that VM. And then live migration, which is still a work in progress, but also emulation for NVMe. So instead of emulating a regular hard drive or using Vertio or Vertio SCSI, this emulates an NVMe device, which has, use it, you know, SATA and, and similar devices like that assume one command at a time. When it's done, you do the next one. Where NVMe can have multiple queues and do more work at once. Well, if your VM is backed by a ZFS pool made up of 100 disks, uh, queuing one, more than one command at a time can really improve performance. And then, of course, there's uh, support for ARM v8 uh, so that you'll be able to run VMs on platforms other than just uh, AMD and Intel x86 machines. Mm. Yeah, that's some exciting stuff. Anyway, if you want to know more about how all that works and more of the history of Beehive, uh, check out the article over on the Clara Systems website. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, uh, Clara Systems offers uh, the uh, flexible support subscription for your ZFS and FreeBSD infrastructure. And if you uh, have a little problem or want to have a little bit of background knowledge or a professional looking over it, uh, get a world-class team of experts to back you up um, and check out their website, clarasystems.com support. Okay, our next article is about the UDF info leak. And uh, that's... Sounding scary, but uh, I think there's a fix already. I think so. Um, CTERT uh, has done a bunch of work on FreeBSD before uh, and found similar, well, issues of this type before. Yeah, so uh, this analysis was done on FreeBSD 11 because that's what he had around. <laughs> okay. Um, it's about an integer overflow and in UDF underscore VFS ops dot C. So that UDF is the... File system for DVDs, right? Universal um, data format? DVDs and CDs, it's it's the one that lets you, uh, on old burnable CDs, it was the one that let you resume and keep adding more files to the file system after. Oh, oh, yes. Uh -huh. uh, and I think it was the default on DVDs as well, yes. Okay. And so there's a, a function called UDF underscore VGET. Uh, takes one, two, three, four uh, arguments. And there is one in particular, the, the size property, uh, is the UDF F entry size plus the value of the EA and AD values. And so to cause a problem, you have three options. Yeah. So, uh, each one have different effects. So one is make L underscore EA negative. One is to make L EAD negative and one is to make LEA and LAD maximum possible positive and rely on an overflowing by adding uh, UDF underscore F entries underscore size. So that will truncate to just uh, hex uh, 0xAE, which would cause the overflow, I think, because that's already the maximum possible number. And if you go to UDF underscore read, uh, you can try this out or see what this does. There are two different paths depending on the result of is data in F entry, which is under our control. And if we analyze that, the simpler case there 
um, this returns true. And that allows you in that method or that function more like um, to cause the overflow. Let's see. It's, it's a lot of source code and you have to um, kind of uh, get into it a little bit before understanding yeah, what is meant. But basically by lying about the values of a couple of these, um, you could then have a UDF read that would read the maximum amount of memory. So you'd get, you know, 0x7 FFFFF bytes of memory uh, from the kernel. And that's, you know, a couple of gigs, I think it works out to. And that was whatever data happens to be in that memory, it's now getting returned as if it was from this ISO when it's actually not. Uh, and so they show how you can just make up an ISO that contains this problem, load the UDF driver, and uh, start playing with it. Okay. Ah, yes, there's... There's really detailed information, the, the kind of um, you would send in if you have found this bug and want to uh, let uh, the uh, developers know about it to, so they can develop a fix. And so this is uh, the detailed analysis here. Um, you should check it out. It's difficult to read on the on the, on the show because it's a lot of source code and we, we cannot go uh, open curly brace, early open bracket. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that would make not much sense to the listener and to us reading it. So, uh, But definitely check it out. It's an interesting walkthrough to this kind of problem. Here in our news roundup here, we have uh, Chris Seibelman writing, I'm now a user of Wim, not classical VI partly because of Windows. Hmm. So that's exciting. Yeah, so he says, in the past, I've written entries such as this other one here titled uh, Vim and VI, or, uh, VI and Vim and Me, where I said that I was pretty much a regular VI user and not really a Vim user because I almost entirely stuck to the VI features that I didn't need the extra ones from Vim. In a comment on my entry on not using and exploring Vim features, uh, user RJC reinforced this, saying that I seem to be using VI instead of Vim, and there was nothing wrong with that. For a long time, I thought this way myself, but these days, this is not true anymore. These days, I really want Vim, not classic VI. The clear breaking point uh, where I became a Vim user uh, instead of a VI user was when I started internalizing and heavily using Vim's multi-window command. I started this as far back as 2016, as signaled by an entry on his blog here about uh, Vim motion commands, but it took a while before I really had the window command sunk in and habits regarding them becoming routine, like using vi-o in most occasions when I'm editing multiple files. I'm not completely fluid with Vim uh, windows yet, and I certainly haven't mastered all the commands, but at this point, I definitely don't want to go back to not having that feature. In my old VI days, editing multiple files was always a pain uh, point where I would start reaching for another editor. Uh, I just wanted I just really want to see more than one file on the screen at once and using my usual editing style. Sometimes I want to see more than one spot in a file at the same time, especially during coding. Yes, uh, doing a split window during coding is really useful. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're looking at the thing that's going to consume what the output of the function you're writing or vice versa, it can be really easy or really helpful to see the code you're writing and the code that's going to interact with it and on the same screen. Mm-hmm. I also very much want Vim's unlimited undo and redo buffers instead of the limited size that you get with VI. There's a bunch of reasons for this, but one is that it's certainly that the VI command uh, set makes it rather easy to accidentally do a second edit operation 
as you're switching around before you realize that you actually want to undo the first one. This is especially the case if your edit operation was by accident, where you hit the wrong key by mistake or didn't realize you weren't in insert mode. Or if you've uh, developed the habit of reflexively reflowing your current paragraph anytime you pause uh, while writing. There's probably uh, other Vim features that I've become accustomed to without realizing it or without realizing that they're Vim features and not VI features. Everywhere I use VI, it's actually Vim now. Although I'm not uh, and now unapologetically using Vim, my VimRC contains, uh, sorry, continues to be pretty minimal and is mostly dedicated to turning things off and setting sensible modern defaults instead of the old VI defaults. I'm unlikely to try to turn my Vim into a super intelligent editor for reasons beyond the scope of this blog entry. Um, but he does say I do, I do use Vim plugins in some of my Vim setups, uh, including Vim buff tab line. I would probably be more enthusiastic about it if I edited lots of files at once in my Vim sessions, but usually I don't edit more than just a couple. Yeah, there's definitely nice features in Vim. And uh, I was just recording a couple of uh, lecture videos for my students with some of the Vim features. And uh, yeah, by just explaining this and going over this, uh, I kind of realized, ah, yes, I don't want to miss these. <laughs> All right, um, then we have FreeBSD on ESXi ARM fling, fixing virtual hardware. So this is ESXi on ARM, which is exciting. And uh, over at VinceRants.com, <laughs> Vince writes, of course, uh, with the current state of FreeBSD on ARM in general, a number of hardware drivers are either set to not auto-load on boot or are entirely missing altogether. Uh, this page is to document my findings with various bits of hardware and, if possible, its fixes. So there's the USB 2.0 controller, or UHCI. Uh, if you switch the USB controller for the FreeBSD virtual machine from the 3.1 controller to the 2.0 controller, you'll lose all USB support. Hmm. That also means that virtual USB devices like keyboard and mouse will stop functioning as well. To get the virtual 2.0 controller to function, add the following to your bootloader conf and reboot your FreeBSD VM. So that's UHCI underscore load equals yes. And uh, there's a note, if you create a virtual machine through a remote connection on VMware Workstation, it will default to using the 2.0 controller rather than the 3.1. And because of this, FreeBSD without the UHCI driver will uh, not have a functional keyboard. Uh, kind of bad if you are uh, typing in Unix. <laughs> change, mm -hmm. the <laughs> change the controller type from 2.0 to 3.1 and reboot the virtual machine to get the keyboard functionality back again. Then there's USB virtual mouse or UMS. Uh, you load this the same way using UMS underscore load equals yes in loader.conf. Yeah, so I think these used to be in the generic kernel. I think they moved out when we got DevMatch. Maybe DevMatch doesn't run on ARM. Could be, but there were also improvements in DevMatch recently and or in an upcoming release. But yeah, for that. Well, I think in particular, I think DevMatch mostly depends on PCI device enumeration stuff and some ARM platforms don't do it that way. Mm. Yeah, it was uh, probably mostly written for uh, i86 mm -hmm. and uh, AMD64. In particular, I wonder if some of these we might need to put into the um hardware notes? installer config so that, that you boot the iso that the keyboard works so you can do the <laughs> yeah, install kind of important like i had an issue the other day where i couldn't type a pipe and then no dashes on the unix terminal and that kind of limits your ability to do yeah pretty much any command so imagine being someone used to an american <laughs> keyboard trying to type on a german keyboard yeah, that that too yeah different places. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, but going back to the article, um, the virtual network card or VMX net uh, needs uh, pre-compiled. Um, ah, yes, that driver is not included with FreeBSD on ARM. However, compiling it manually works without any modification to source code to make it work on ARM. And to do this, you must ensure you either install the system source tree when you're installing the system or download the source matching your FreeBSD version after installed. That gets you also the latest uh, updates for those. And then you go to, uh, in this case, user source sys slash module slash VMware slash VMXnet3 and then make and make install. And then after that build procedure, you can then add uh, to loader.conf if underscore VMX underscore uh, load equals yes. Yeah, so I think that driver might start uh, being available for auto load in, in the next release of FreeBSD. I think it, it missed 12.2 uh, just barely. By a margin. Uh, but, you know, it, the idea is that we'll make this work uh, better eventually. But uh, big thanks to Vince for uh, putting this out uh, so that people can start playing with it today. Yes, because we want the feedback and it's also important so that uh, people uh, get actually the support. Yeah, and basically the same applies to the para-virtualized SCSI driver. It basically works exactly the same as the IfNet one there. So, or uh, VMXNet. So the modules available in FreeBSD, it's just not included in the generic kernel. So you can just compile the module and load it. Um, likely, you know, it's the change of a config file to make that module be compiled by default and included on the, the ARM release images uh, so that you'll just be able to load it next time rather than having to compile it first. Yeah, yeah that makes the experience a bit more uh, smooth. Uh, there's uh, instructions similar to that to uh, the Paravirtual SCSI controller, uh, VMCI, Virtual Machine Communication Interface. Uh, this is for i36 and AMD64 specifically. Um, CD-ROM, in case you want to remount your ISO image that you booted from. Uh, so that has also uh, instructions in the post. Yeah, good to yeah, know. And specifically, there's an update day there saying that oh. last week... Uh, FreeBSD head was changed to include the driver by default. Uh, so if you get a newer snapshot, then it will just work. Ah, even better. Okay, that's uh, good to know. So yes, thanks for Vince uh, to jumping into this and being one of the first people to try to get FreeBSD going on it and figuring out what was missing. And uh, we'll try to get all this stuff in by default so that it'll be a smoother experience down the road for people using ESXi Fling. Ah, yes. And then next we have introduction of a new FreeBSD remote process plugin in LLDB. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, some work going on at uh, Moritz Systems, uh, which has been contracted by the FreeBSD Foundation to modernize the LLDB debugger's support for FreeBSD. So basically they're writing a new plugin that utilizes the more modern client-server layout uh, that's already being used in LLVM for Darwin, Linux, NetBSD, and unofficially by OmBSD. The new plugin is going to gradually replace the legacy one and provide new features. The LLVM project provides a modern, modular, permissively licensed compiler infrastructure, a toolchain that includes Lang, uh, Clang, the compiler, uh, LLD, the linker, and LLDB, the debugger, uh, is being developed as a part of it. FreeBSD has already replaced GCC with Clang as its primary system compiler and replaced the old linker with LLD. Uh, however, LLDB is still much uh, work in progress and is only installed alongside the GDB that's available on FreeBSD. The original FreeBSD plugin for LLDB used the legacy monolithic architecture, 
In this mode, the debugging program is being run inside the same process phase as the debugger UI. The new plugin uses a client server architecture that runs the debugged program as part of LLDB-server, while the LLDB UI runs remotely. This makes the LLDB code easier and makes it possible to reuse it as a library with third-party code as the debugger relies on monitoring signals and this functionality interferes with other uh, code like GUI toolkits. So it means you might actually be able to have a GUI for the debugger, not just the command line stuff. Uh, so the project is divided up into three major milestones, each taking approximately one month. Milestone one will introduce a new FreeBSD remote process plugin uh, with basic support and then upstream that to LLVM. Milestone two will ensure and add the mandated features uh, in the projects such as process launch, process attach, process attach by name and PID, user land core file processing, breakpoints, watchpoints, threads, remote debugging, etc. for AMD64 and i3D6. Then lastly, to iterate over the LLDB test, detect, and as time permits, fix the bugs, uh, ensure bug reports for each non-fixed and known problem, and add any missing man pages and update the FreeBSD handbook. Uh, and then they talk about how they'll handle the transition to the new plugin. Since we want to be able to push our work upstream without causing even temporary regressions in FreeBSD support in LLDB, we're developing it as a new plugin with the technical name being FreeBSD Remote so they can coexist with the existing FreeBSD plugin. Uh, at the moment, toggling between the two is possible by setting the FreeBSD underscore remote underscore plugin environment variable. If it is unset, then the legacy FreeBSD plugin is used. But if it is set, then LLDB will switch to using this new plugin. This is the approach suggested by Upstream, and it is consistent with how new plugins for Windows uh, are currently being developed as well. Furthermore, the new plugin is also enabled automatically if LLDB-server is started directly. This is because the old plugin doesn't work in that server mode, so it can assume if you're starting in that mode that you want the new plugin. Eventually, as the new plugins becomes at par with the legacy one, uh, we'll switch it to be the default. Uh, except for on the architectures where the new one's not supported yet. Mm, right. Okay, that's cool. And then there's lots more detail about how it works and uh, some videos of it working. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that people can get the idea of what it does and how it works. Very nice. Good collaboration here. And I think this will also, um, as, as mentioned, make it to other operating systems eventually. Uh, speaking of other operating systems, our next article is about OpenBSD on a laptop. Well, we have a lot of those uh, in the past, but definitely good to have more because that shows people that this works. Uh, this is over at functionallyparanoid.com and uh, goes like this. Hi, I know it's been a while. I recently had to nuke and repave my personal laptop and I thought it would be nice to share with the community, how I set up OpenBSD on it so I have a useful, modern, secure environment for getting work done. I'm not going to say I'm the expert on this or that uh, is the best way to set up OpenBSD, but I thought it would be worthwhile for folks doing Google searches to at least get my opinion on this. So given that, let's go. So first you download the install67.fs image from uh, openbsd.org or uh, since last episode, you know this is now install68.img. And uh, you write that to a USB drive on uh, your other operating system, your other <laughs> that you have around. Um, fairly straightforward. The command is given there. You should definitely make sure that you use the proper device with the DD command, and the, especially the OF part. Otherwise, you overwrite parts of your disk that shouldn't be overwritten. Okay, once that is done, you then boot off that USB drive and drop to a shell at the install prompt. And there you create the full disk encryption container for the install. Ah, you make it uh, secure from the get-go. Okay. 
you go to, to slash dev, then you uh, make slash make dev executable, then you run that as a shell script. And then uh, on SD1, uh, you create that device basically, SD1. And then you can fdisk that using the I and Y switches. And then you do a disk label on that. And that uh, basically creates one big A partition for the whole drive, but specify RAID as the partition type. Oh yeah, I see where this is going. So secure and uh, yeah, fault tolerant. Uh, then you run uh, BIOCTL or BIOCTL dash lowercase c, capital C, then dash L and then uh, def, in this case, SDA1A, then soft rate zero. You then enter the decryption password and type exit to restart the installation. The only tweak uh, that he made to the installer is to set up the Wi-Fi. won't uh, work in the installer or under reboot for whatever reason because, ah, you have an Intel IWM device that needs the firmware installed. Uh, you do that later, okay? And make sure that the USR partition is at least 200 gigs in size, okay? So after the first reboot, um, went back to the Linux box with the same USB drive, turned it into a single partition, FAT32 drive, and downloaded the firmware for the Intel IWM device that's uh, making the circle complete here for the networking. And that places uh, on the USB disk. And then you can mount that on OpenBSD and copy that to ETC and then get that into your firmware directory. And then run FW update to get the latest uh, or update the firmware. Yeah, it's a little annoying to have to sneaker net the firmware in there, but yeah. you know, if you only have Wi-Fi and you need the Wi-Fi driver, that's what you got to do. Yeah, then you run syspatch to get the latest updates uh, to everything that happened after that release, and that's uh, after uh, takes a bit of time, but just be patient. And then you reboot because so much has changed on the disk from what is running in memory. You should see in the uh, output from Dmask that you that all of the firmware installed has been successfully and that the kernel will link to help fight off potential ROP attackers. <laughs> Excellent. Um, then you create a doas.conf file. So that's your uh, sudo um, alternative. And that uh, is the OpenBSD way of doing things. doas.conf. And then set up a couple of RCTL commands for APMD, because you need power management on a laptop. And then you basically add yourself to the staff group and other important things. That's basically the configuration now that is more user-specific, um, like uh, adding Vim, you you probably use a different editor. Yeah, and you see, they install uh, GNOME, GNOME tweaks, uh, disable the Xenicara DM, uh, enable or install Firefox, Chromium, LibreOffice, the OwnCloud client, KeePass X client, uh, the Tor browser, uh, Shotwell, which is an image manager, uh, set up some wallpapers, make you know, all that kind of stuff and make a nice desktop. Oh yeah. It's a good way to get started and gives you the commands to, en to enter at certain points. So you should be able to follow this along. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now and start doing your backups. So Tarsnap is a backup service for people who are truly paranoid about their backups. What's important here is that the software that you run on your computer is open source. You can take it and inspect it and compile it yourself and be sure that it's doing exactly what it says on the tin, which is taking your private key and using that to encrypt your data after it's been compressed and deduplicated 
uh, before sending it to the cloud. Um, this way, the amount of data you send to the cloud is minimized because after you take your initial backup, you only have to backup uh, the bits that are that have changed, and the deduplication helps reduce the amount of change. And then compression also means that you're reducing that change further. So it means that it's easier to back up the contents of your laptop on a daily basis because you only have to send the already compressed and deduplicated chunks of what is actually different about your laptop from yesterday. Uh, you know, you only generate so much new data per day, right? And send that to the cloud. And because of the deduplication, it means that even though you're storing uh, basically a full backup of every day, uh, you're not paying for that extra space. You only pay for the unique data. Uh, and because it's all encrypted with your key, the only way to use that data that's in the cloud, even if somebody else were to get a hold of it, it wouldn't be any use to them unless they have the decryption key. And since you have the decryption key, unlike other services where they encrypt it with their own key that you don't have, uh, it means that even if there's an evil actor at Tarsnap or at Amazon or whatever, anywhere, even if the government wants your data, in the end, they can't decrypt the data unless they have the key. So as long as you keep the key safe and don't lose it, all your data is available to you only. Uh, and if you ever need the data to go away, you destroy the only copy of the key and then nobody can read the data. But don't accidentally destroy the key because then nobody can read the data and you probably wanted it. <laughs> yeah, restores are kind of important if you need them. Yes. Uh, and if you need a little bit of help uh, using Tarsnap, there's a book. You can get Tarsnap Mastery uh, from Michael W. Lucas. And it, on top of telling you how Tarsnap works and how to make best use of it, has lots of great practices and recipes uh, to help you make the most out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So no excuses to not make backups anymore. Yeah. So head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now, sign up, put some money in, start doing backups. Uh, because it's pay as you go, you will never get a surprise bill. So uh, it's definitely worth checking out. There's no other online backup service where they give you the source code for the client, but also, uh, you know, that is actually secure enough to use. Okay, it's time for feedback and questions this week. We have uh, been collecting feedback over the course of this uh, show's running, of course, and you should definitely keep doing that. And everything should go to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And remember, we are doing probably a special episode where you can ask us questions or send us questions and we will collect them all. And when we have enough, we will do a separate episode to answer all of these. And um, those should also be sent to the email address I just mentioned. And the people who have sent us questions this time, or it's their turn now, uh, the first is Ethan with um, a Linux user wanting to try out OpenBSD. Uh, Ethan writes, hey there, I'm a Linux user that's been uh, wanting to try out OpenBSD. I've read some of the FAQ pages and watched a really good presentation on why OpenBSD is more secure than other operating systems, but I'm not sure I can jump in directly from Linux. I'd also like to learn about ZFS. I'm actually a sysadmin, but I've always worked with Linux servers, mainly CentOS. I've signed up for the zfs.com mailing list, and I'm hoping I'll uh, learn a bit from that. Excellent. Uh, finally, I did some Linux kernel development as a way to support things that I use in ways additionally to monetary. I would also like to for OpenBSD, but I've never used CBS, and it doesn't seem guides for contributing are as heavily produced like they are for Linux. In general, I would like... Uh, to become more involved in the BSD community. I love the show, and I'm currently working my way back through the episodes. 
keep it up. Yeah. Okay. So starting with the first question about using OpenBSD rather than Linux. If you mean as a desktop, then the guide we just covered on setting up OpenBSD will give you a good start to, you know, getting to a GUI and so on. So that when you boot, you have something other than just the terminal or you know, the TWM default X stuff when you have no window manager and so on. Uh, so that'll probably give you enough of a leg up to be able to get started. It also talks about how to install packages, like with package underscore add instead of yum install and things like that. Then you asked about ZFS. You know, you can install ZFS on CentOS if you want, although you can't install it on OpenBSD. If you want to do ZFS, I recommend FreeBSD uh, because it has the best integration of it. Uh, where you can actually run the root file system off of it and take all get all the advantages of ZFS uh, to your system. For example, on my laptop, it's very nice to be able to use boot environments to uh, you know undo an upgrade if it doesn't go well or something. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, you talked a bit about uh, Linux development. You know, you don't have to use CVS to do development in this case. You know, in the end, unless you're going so far as to being an actual contributor and being the person that commits the code to OpenBSD. You don't really have to worry about the CVS stuff so much. Uh, you can just use their GitHub mirror, do your development there, then make a patch and send it to their, their mailing list. Uh, I think it's OpenBSD-Tech is the one they want. Their docs do say which mailing list to mail the patches to. And then, you know, a patch that's out of Git is not really any different than a patch that's out of CVS. And it will let them uh, integrate it and commit it for you. Uh, so you don't have to worry about learning CVS if you just want to uh, submit patches. Yeah, they will do the necessary steps to... Uh, massage it into their <laughs> conversion control system. Yeah, I think in general, also just any guide on CVS will probably tell you enough of what you need to know. Uh, CVS is very basic, uh, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, so that shouldn't stop you. Uh, and uh, probably since you're uh, coming from Linux, you probably did a, in your early days when you started on with, out with Linux, you also did a little bit of distro hopping. And that's sub probably a bit similar that you're now doing again when you switch to the BSDs, any BSD. And uh, the first thing to know is that you shouldn't get frustrated if the first install doesn't go as planned or goes up in flames. Um, be patient. There's plenty of stuff to learn. Uh, but you can, when you're coming from Linux, you can use a lot of commands already. The ls, the cp, all that is the same. It's not something special. So a lot yeah. of these. And then some of the other ones like yum install being package underscore add. Once you know that, you there's not much else to worry about. Yeah, there's probably a bit of muscle memory that you have to switch, but it's not it's not as worse when you're coming from Windows to a Unix system. There you have to learn a lot of new things. But it's also possible to do that. So yeah, uh, keep us posted uh, on any of your uh, endeavors or what you have uh, basically installed then. And if you get stuck or have problems, then uh, send us a follow-up question and we'll be happy to answer that. All right, then we have Ian with a learning IT question in general. Uh, he writes, hello, Alan, Benedict, and JT. I am currently learning general IT. I'm a hobbyist at the moment, but in the future, it may become a potential career path. I know some Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, but I'm completely new to BSD and think it's a gap in my knowledge that I should fill. Oh, yes, you should. Uh, especially in the server space. I have always been told that the best way to learn is by doing, so I was thinking of spinning up a FreeBSD droplet on DigitalOcean and doing something with it. Unfortunately, I lack imagination and wondered if you guys had any idea for a simple, productive, and informative project for an absolute beginner. I love the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you. And yours. 
Yeah, it depends what you want to do. Well, just to think of some of the things I do with DigitalOcean Droplets, uh, I have a mail server, uh, which is something you can set up that's maybe not a skill that's as in demand anymore. So you might not be the best place to start. But um, you do something like own cloud and set up something that would manage, you know, sharing files between computers and syncing them in a calendar and, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't know. You can do everything that you can do on Linux. So, cool. you know, you could ask yourself if you were going to set up a Linux VM and put something on it, what would it be? And then you can probably do that with FreeBSD as well. Yeah, do a little web server. That's a good start. Yeah. And, but put it in a jail. Start. Put it in a jail. That's yes. definitely a good thing to start with. That's what, because that's what you want to use BSD for as one of the many things you want. Yeah. So one idea would be set up jails on the droplet and run two different things in separate jails on the same machine and see the advantages of doing that that way without having to run, you know, two separate droplets. So instead of paying for two, you're just paying for one. Um, but you're running two completely separate uh, things by having them in separate jails. Yeah. Uh, so you might just start with, you know, a DigitalOcean droplet and install that uh, Bastille BSD or something. Uh, and then they also have a bunch of templates that have already built jails. All of that, you might not want to use those because you won't learn as much, but you could use that list as a source of things to decide what you might want to run in a jail. Yeah, and from that you get a lot of experience or at least some uh, practical hands-on stuff, which is a good way of learning, by the way. And I think broaden your horizon to multiple operating systems is a good way of getting a, a, a better viewpoint of when you have to decide which problem should be solved with any operating system. You don't have just a hammer for every kind of problem, as people would say. So you can better make a decision, ah, yes, this is the problem that would be better solved with operating system X, Y, or Z. And yeah, definitely broaden the horizon and try things out. And don't be afraid to ask if you get stuck. There is plenty of resources out there to help you, forums, uh, IRC channels, and uh, the like. And that should give you a good start into your uh, BSD adventure. Okay, uh, and last but not least is Johnny with BSD swag question. Uh, short and simple, but nevertheless important because people uh, want to know about this. Uh, that goes, hi guys, I would love to purchase some BSD swag. Can you recommend some shops that have BSD swag? Uh, anyway, love the show. Keep up the awesome episodes. Thank you. Uh, what kind of swag would you like? T-shirts? Uh, just a general question for everybody is if there's something specific, we could maybe look into making that a thing. Yeah, I remember uh, FreeBSD Mall. Uh, that was... Uh, Yes, so there's freebsdmall.com uh, and they have uh, some basic, you know, shirts and hats and stickers and stuff. But I remember Anne from the uh, marketing uh, of the FreeBSD Foundation was working or had a shop. I'm not sure the URL right now. Yeah, like I think the foundation had made a store, but I don't know where it is. Yeah, that should be more prominent on the website because people are kind of uh, want to show the BSD uh, hold up the BSD flag in, in any kind of <laughs> utilities that you can get there, like T-shirts or stress balls mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Uh, but it, it it escapes me at the moment what the URL was. Um, yes, we will have to uh, ask Anne if that's yeah. the thing and or why we it's not prominently our... linked on the FreeBSD Foundation's website so we could find it when we needed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or one of our listeners knows the URL right away and uh, has already fired up their uh, email client and sent us the URL. So we will follow up uh, in a future episode or post this in the show notes. And so uh, that 
link is closed and people can get there and buy stuff because yeah, why not? If the things are out there that can be bought and people like and pick the ones they like and yeah, wear them and get them and show a little bit of BSD support this way. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that question. And I guess that pretty much wraps up this episode. We should definitely give a shout out to the people listening to us on the Twitch. Uh, it's twitch.tv slash bsdnow. Every time we are going live, we will also broadcast there. And people can also um, find new episode when they go to our Twitter uh, account. It's twitter.com slash bsdnow. And there's also an IRC chat. Uh, during the episode. Well, it's basically open 24 7. Um, it's irc.geekshed. It's built in. I would say it's built into bsdnow.tv slash live. It's irc.geekshed.net and the channel name is bsdnow. Yeah, exactly. That's all the ways you can reach us. And about our preferred way is email, of course. And anything that you want to know from us is uh, going to feedback at bsdnow.tv. So thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, stay safe, stay cool, stay warm. And when you go outside, stay warm. When you stay inside also. Um, but yeah, keep your cool and w wait up for our next week's episode of BSD. Yeah.